0: We welcome, your we, welcome your we welcome your ears. We welcome your ears. We welcome your ears. I can see it now. It's a white hex tied to a pole. flag of truce. Those creatures know what that means. What anything means. Wait a minute. Something's happening. A shape is rising out of the pit.
1: I can make out a small beam of light against a mirror.
0: What's that? There? There's a jet of flame springing from the mirror and it oh, leaps right at the advancing men strikes them head-on. Lord, they are turning into flames. Ah! The whole field's caught up by the woods. There's gas heading everywhere. Coming this way
1: now, about 20 yards to my right. Ladies and gentlemen, due to circumstances beyond our control, we are unable to continue the broadcast from Grover's Mill. The
0: whole experience was extremely intense.
1: I suppose we had it coming to us because in fact, we weren't as innocent as we meant to be. When we did the Martian broadcast, we were fed up the way in which everything that came over this new magic box, the radio, was being swallowed. People, you know, do suspect what they read in the newspapers and what people tell them, but when the radio came, and I suppose now television, anything that came through that new machine was believed. So, in a way, our our broadcast was an assault on the uh, credibility of that machine. We wanted people to understand that they shouldn't take any opinion pre-digested and they shouldn't swallow everything that came through the tap, whether it was radio or not. You're listening to The Sill Podcast with Peter Noce and Harry Posner. Episode 190, Time Trek. Revealing tomorrow, today. The illuminating power of science fiction.
0: Come on in, have a seat. Join
1: the conversation. Good morning from Ontario, Harry. How are you?
0: Good morning from Nova Scotia, Peter. I'm well, I'm well. How are you doing?
1: Pretty good. Weather's nice today. It's supposed to go up to 17 degrees before Mm. the weekend begins when things take a downturn, apparently on Saturday. But uh, today being Thursday, it's beautiful. It's already 14 degrees going up to 17 and sunny. How about there? (laughs)
0: It's funny how when people say, how's it going there? We immediately talk about the weather. Oh, my weather is uh, sunny and warm. What's your weather? (laughs) Well, my weather is cool and windy. Well, it actually is cool and windy here in Nova Scotia, in my neck of the woods. Winter is kind of poking its head and uh, it's going to happen fairly soon. And uh, we're preparing. We're almost finished our barn for the horses. So uh, in a few days, they'll be able to step into the luxury of being indoors for the first time in five months. So uh, I'm looking forward to that, and they are too. Yeah, things are going well here. Thanks, Peter.
1: We get back to something we both used to enjoy doing quite a bit, and we haven't done for a long time, and that's a Time Trek series episode. And today we're exploring science fiction. Mm-hmm.
0: And what's the title of the episode?
1: The title of today's podcast is Revealing Tomorrow Today, The Illuminating Power of Science Fiction.
0: Yeah, that's exactly what we're going to talk about. And kind of take you on a little journey through the history of that genre of fiction, talk about its relevance to us personally and to people we know and to society in general, just give you some good pointers in the direction of terrific books and films that you should not miss if you'd like to get into this genre of fiction. I think we should start with a definition so that people understand what we're going to talk about, because... Science fiction is a fiction in which advanced technology and or science is a key element. So there has to be some sort of advanced technology or science. In other words, if I open my closet door and there's a kind of a weird hole and I step into it and suddenly I'm in another world with fantastical creatures, etc. That's not really science fiction. There's no technology involved. It's just pure fantasy. So we need to distinguish that for folks. So we're talking about somewhat hardcore sci-fi or science fiction today
1: sure and there will be some crossover because there are some shows that are arguably in both camps yep why are we interested why are people intrigued and why do we watch science fiction or read science fiction or partake in that whole realm Mm. and essentially it's either to escape to look forward to get ideas we have the hero element in science fiction movies And of course, the novelty and all those things sort of tie into our innate curiosity in worlds beyond the world we live in.
0: Yeah, not to mention the thrill of being scared shitless by films like Alien or The Blob or The Thing, (laughs) that sort of stuff. People always enjoy that too. So tell me what science fiction has sort of created in you. How has science fiction affected you when you read it?
1: Well, for me, it's the exploration part that I enjoy. And of course, a lot of it is also based on, if you're talking only books, the author. For example, I was an Isaac Asimov fan, read many of his books. The one really interesting book was uh, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, produced in 1818. And that was a story that nowadays, I think of it involving science fiction, but at the time or growing up, I first saw Frankenstein in film form, because I think I actually saw the film before I looked at the book, and it was more about monsters type of idea as a kid. I didn't think of it as science fiction. Did you?
0: Not really. And the fascinating part for me about Frankenstein, the book, was the sort of sensitivity towards the monster that is not so much in films that I've seen. Frankenstein's monster comes off as this very empathetic, sad victim in a way of a mad science, a mad scientist. And the interesting thing, too, about that story, Peter, published in 1818, mm-hmm. was that a couple of years prior to that, in 1816, Mary, her brother Percy, and Lord Byron, they actually engaged in a competition to see who could write the best horror story. So, it was supposed to be a horror story. So, after a few days, Mary Shelley was inspired to write this book based upon an imagination of a scientist who Creates life out of lightning and basic technologies that she could imagine at the time. And so she wins the bet, ultimately, at <laughs> the competition. But really, it's the first, you could say it's the first science fiction book of its kind ever written back in 1818 because it uses science. It's a scientist who creates the monster. And science gone wrong is a theme that has echoed throughout the genre of science fiction in books and in films, right to the current time period.
1: Mm -hmm. And just as a side note to the story, even though the book was published in 1818, it was published under an anonymous author. Her name actually didn't appear until, I believe, 13 years later, 1831. Right. I don't know the details as to why. I don't know if you do or not, but as I said, it's just a side story.
0: Yeah, I don't know the details, only that uh, many women wrote in those days under a pseudonym because it was looked upon askance. This was not women's role to be writing books. I
1: mentioned Isaac Asimov, but the one that sticks more prominently in my mind is Jules Verne and 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. One of the things that intrigued me about Verne was how advanced some of his science or technology aspects were within his stories, like the actual Nautilus, the submarine, when you think about when it was written, what he had in that submarine well over 100 years ago. Time Machine was another one. I was always fascinated with time travel.
0: That's H.G. Wells who wrote that book.
1: And then, of course, there are other stories like Clockwork Orange, Fahrenheit 451, and so on. Uh, 1984, of course, Orwell, which almost everyone knows and was even the subject of Apple's coming out party, so to speak, Mm -hmm. when they used 1984 to launch their products.
0: Right. And we should stay with the 19th century for a second. Let's go back to Jules Verne, Mm -hmm. because in a way, one of his books, From the Earth to the Moon, which described a voyage to the moon, was made into one of the earliest films of the time, I believe it was 1902. was a a short film directed by Georges Méliès inspired by Jules Verne's 1865 novel. And so, a lot of these books spawned early film and, of course, remakes of later films as well. I think Journey to the Center of the Earth was made a few different times, if I'm not mistaken, as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, H.G. Wells, the time machine. Time travel is one of those themes that runs through science fiction. So, the science that goes wrong is a general theme that we see a lot. Time travel, space exploration, meeting up with aliens, whether from another planet or planet Earth. These are all kind of common themes in science fiction. And then more recently, meeting up with AI and robotics and some of the ramifications that could result in that development of technology and science. So, It's interesting to see how these books and movies spawn further exploration and development. Well, in fact, typically when you see the
1: movie, i.e. even television programs like Star Trek, what you see in those films or movies, generally within a quarter of a century, these technologies that we see in these films, we actually begin using them in some form or other. Mm -hmm. Wristwatches and smartphones that do all kinds of things now, we sort of use The same elements that have been brought forward in these sci-fi type shows or movies or books, they become part of our reality. And I think that's part of the great fascination with these movies is that people do see these as sort of forward-looking elements. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, and I think the writers of science fiction basically are trusting that science will find a way to get over the obstacles that are standing in front of it. For example, with time travel. It's considered something that's not possible really, but in the world of science fiction, it is possible. And whether it's 25 years into the future or 800,000 years into the future, as in the time machine, H.G. Wells's time machine, he sends his people 800,000 years into the future, if you can believe that. And what's interesting is what the character finds in that far distant future is that humanity has evolved into two separate species. The Eloi, who have this pampered life above ground and a very banal existence, and the Morlocks, who live below ground, tend to the machinery, provide the food for the Eloi who live above ground. But the twist is that the Morlocks eat the Eloi. They're cultivating the Eloi like cows and pigs for their consumption. So it's a really interesting twist. Very much like the Twilight Zone episode, <laughs> where the alien comes to Earth and assures humanity, who are very frightened, he assures the humans, Oh, no, no, we're here to serve humanity. And the twist at the end being that humanity is going to be dinner for these aliens. But what he could have said
1: was, Guess who's coming to dinner?
0: <laughs> right, exactly. Same idea. Yes. Yeah, so the time travel thing is really interesting. Remember, there was a, a show on television in the early 60s called the time tunnel yes and the characters would jump through this swirling spirally thing end up in another year somewhere have an adventure and then the time tunnel would appear again regularly in these different locations that they could jump into to a different time again i watched that show religiously i really enjoyed it because of the concept of time travel I watched it too. The
1: specific episode that sticks in my mind was an aircraft carrier where he jumps in and he goes back into World War II, where the character goes back into World War II. Mm.
0: Yeah, I find those a bit boring (laughs) myself. I like the more fantastical ones, like the story by Isaac Asimov. It's called A Sound of Thunder. Mm. It's beautiful. He coins the term, the butterfly effect in that story, the first time we hear that term. And it's a story where somebody goes back on this adventure tour through time to the age of the dinosaurs and there's a kind of a runway that you're supposed to stay on as part of your tour group and you're not supposed to get off that runway. You're told in no uncertain terms do not step off the runway ever and don't do anything nasty to the wildlife that you see and the guy doesn't really get it. He's a bit dense and at some point near the end of the story he accidentally steps off the runway Mm -hmm. and then gets back on it again. And they go back to the present, and they discover that the world has completely changed. It's a different world. It's run by fascist governments, and societies are all fascist-based. And he realizes, he looks at the bottom of his boot, and there's a crushed butterfly on the bottom of his boot. So the whole notion of you do something on one side of the planet, and it ripples and affects everything else, And that's the same with time. If you go back in time and change something, it ripples through into the present. In other words, I could go back and kill my grandfather, in which case I would disappear because my current self would disappear because he would not have his child who would then have me. So there's this paradox that writers working in time travel stories have to kind of deal with every time. That's fascinating to me, that kind of story.
1: Despite all these fantasy-laden or way-out-there ideas, it's interesting to me how the same basic themes seem to be inculcated within these films or books. And it's always about mankind being at the center of it and generally being projected as the good guy, because there's always this good guy, bad guy theme in a lot of these movies. And even the story you mentioned about the underground and the above ground, you could almost say upper class, lower class. Mm -hmm. And what you were also talking about when you said, well, that's a little bland for me. I like the more out there ideas projected on film or books. This is where I differentiate the level of interest in these movies. I think people who have what you described are much more into science fiction as a genre than people who just watch it out of curiosity or entertainment.
0: Oh, sure. When you read Arthur C. Clarke's Childhood's End, that novel, which I've read a number of times, I keep coming back to it. Mm. To me, it's such an incredible book. It also reminds me of The Day the Earth Stood Still, that 1950s film. It's about how these aliens come to Earth and they hover in these gigantic spaceships. They cover the entire planet like a cloud. And it's clear that they're vastly superior and much more powerful than any Earth technology or weaponry. And so they basically say, "You know, we're going to annihilate the Earth within X amount of time unless you get your shit together. Basically, mm. <laughs> they, yeah, they put an ultimatum to the planet, get along and figure it out, etc. And the same in the day the Earth stood still. The emissary from the alien world, played by Michael Rennie, I believe, the actor, he says the same thing. And he says, We're going to give you a little demonstration of our power if you don't believe it. And what he does is he stops time for something like an hour. Mm. And you see, suddenly, cars stop. People are frozen with in position with a milkshake half lifted to their mouth. Everything is frozen except for one person who's been given as the witness to see the power of these aliens, and then he unfreezes time. So these are the kinds of sort of fantastic ideas that emerge from the minds of science fiction writers and producers of these films. I love that film, The Day the Earth Stood Still. Yes,
1: I know that one very well. I'll just ask you a very simple question to sort of change the direction of this conversation a little bit. So in general, if you were given a choice. Between watching a well-made, for example, biopic on a famous historical figure or a person that exists even in the present where you're going to get some detailed and very comprehensive information and so on, exploration of this person, their lives, versus something very sci-fi, which has no connection to any known individual that explores all those things that you discuss, the fantastical, to use that word, the wonderment and so on. Which movie would you choose to watch?
0: Well, the fantastical one. That's that's my nature. I'm a bit of a dreamer. And so I like to dream of possibilities and strange and wonderful worlds and that sort of thing. So when I watch a movie like Blade Runner, for example, which I think is one of the greatest movies ever made, it's an incredible film. Mm. The visual world that's created as a future that's not that far in advance, actually, I think it's uh, San Francisco, takes place in San Francisco. And the Earth technology is really kind of grungy and not very pleasing to the eye, but yet there's all these robotic and AI advancements. And the hero, Decker, Sergeant Decker, has to go out and eliminate these runaway androids, if you like, called replicants, who are beginning to wake up to who they are and what they are and they're royally pissed. So, it's really a great film. I just love that film. And it takes you on a journey and an adventure, which is really wonderful. Not that I don't like bios of people, but I much prefer to be taken on a fantastical journey. That's my choice anyway. And so much of science fiction always points back to what does it mean to be a human being? Mm -hmm. When you're facing into an alien. Your humanity is reflected back to you by the way you respond to that alien. So all of these films really shed light on the human condition. Now, when you talk about reality, you know, stories about that are real and bios, etc., there's a book I want to talk about because I think it's a critical book written in the 20th century that is both science fiction but also reality in a way. And that's 1984, George Orwell's dystopian book. Because it's a science fiction book in the sense that it's set in the future. Mm -hmm. And the science and technology part is that Big Brother, the surveillance state, is everywhere. Big Brother is watching you. So there's the science part. And then the rest of it is more the psychological part of how this character negotiates this world. But it's really real in that Orwell was, in a sense, writing about Hitler and Nazism and fascism taking over the world. So when you think about that story and the last few years of our lives here on planet Earth, where the state, big brother, has been treating us like little brother, like children for the last several years, and saying, we know what's right for you, and this is what you're going to do. So there's something about that novel, 1984, that has been resonating for people since he wrote it back when did he write it in the 40s, 50s? In the 40s, yeah. In the 40s. has resonated through the decades and right through to today. So I think it's a turning point. It's one of those turning point books, critical books of science fiction that has changed the way we view ourselves and the world. Same with the movie 2001, A Space Odyssey. Mm-hmm. I think it came out in the 70s? The actual movie itself, I think, it
1: was 1969, thereabouts.
0: Yeah, and and so that was a science fiction film which really changed the genre as well. Stanley Kubrick is a genius, and he really created a world on that space station, and in a way created the first kind of AI character in the form of the computer, Hal, Hal 9000, who basically starts to disobey the orders of the crew, which is something that you're not supposed to be able to do. I mean, Isaac Asimov wrote a series called I, Robot. Mm-hmm. And he wrote there are three fundamental rules for robots. Robot can't harm a human being kind of thing. A robot can't be ordered to harm another human being. And a robot can only defend itself if it's not harming another human being. And yet, Hal breaks those rules. And so, it's really a harbinger of the potential dangers of AI becoming self-conscious and maybe pushing humanity aside. hmm Precautionary tales, if you like. And it was also a visually beautiful film, 2001.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, it also coincided with a lot of the images that we were getting in those days because that was at the height of the space program and when they were landing a man on the moon. And so, we already had some imagery Yeah, of space and so on. And that took it to a whole other level, of course, because it's also futuristic. Mm -hmm. But as you say, it really gave us an indication or the whole AI idea was really well depicted in that movie. And it still is, I think, in some ways, what we fear most is that the technology kind of strengthens itself beyond our capacity, where it manages itself and no longer under our control.
0: Yeah. One of the early classic films kind of looks at that. It's sort of set in a dystopian future of robots and technology, film called Metropolis Mm. by Fritz Lang. And that's one of those movies that is fascinating to watch with a live soundtrack. And I've seen that. I've witnessed that a number of times. It's a movie that's chosen, and then there's a group of musicians play live music. It's a silent film. They play live music underneath the film. And it's really fascinating to take in that film with that live music. I think Maria is the name of the robot that you see, that iconic image of the robot from that early film as well. And then you've got Chaplin's Modern Times, 1936. Oh, yes. Where he's kind of moving through the gears, that famous scene where he's caught up in the gears of the giant machine. Mm -hmm. And he's kind of gobbled up in that and being processed by the machine. So there's lots of examples of tremendous movies that look at the future as a dystopian world.
1: All the crossovers, the creativity, the art, the technology, all sort of aimed ultimately at how it affects us, humanity.
0: Yeah, and how we are evolving or need to evolve in the face of these things. James Cameron's movie Avatar came out in 2009, and it's about this mining company corporation that goes to this planet and is basically trying to use up the resources and push the native inhabitants, the NAVI they're called, out of there. And it's an incredible film that sort of echoes the costs of environmental destruction on the planet so it's really about the human condition the navi are essentially the indigenous peoples people who are connected to nature and rely on nature for their survival in the face of the evil technologists the evil corporations so i mean it's very much an echo of what has happened in our fragile world
1: and that's what good directors and writers do. They bring attention to things through their own creative process and entertain us and inform us at the same time. Yes, exactly.
0: Well, oh, I forgot to mention one of the classic time travel films, too, that we shouldn't forget to mention because it's a very popular one. It was a series, Back to the Future. Uh, Michael J. Fox stars in Back to the Future, where his time machine is a car created by this mad scientist, this mad professor, it spawned a series of sequels called *Back to the Future* two and three, I think it was. Mm-hmm. So lots of great films uh, have come our way through these genres. The *Aliens* film, the series with Sigourney Weaver, which scared the shit out of me when it came out. <laughs> right. <laughs>
1: Yeah, they always manage to make these creatures look not only terrifying from a physical aspect, but they create this sort of mystery and energy that scares you long before you even see them.
0: Yeah, and most sci fi films have depicted aliens as these scary creatures that we must be frightened of and that have ill intentions towards humanity. But there are exceptions, like Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Mm -hmm. starring Richard Dreyfus. That was a film in which the aliens. In the end were depicted as benevolent creatures here to help humanity and not harm humanity. Same thing with Jodie Foster in Contact. Oh yes, that's right. Isn't that the film where she's looking at their communication? Mm-hmm. She cracks the code of their communication and thereby understands that they are benevolent as well. So yeah, there are a few of those types of stories that are saying, don't be frightened, it's okay, there's goodwill in the universe. It isn't all evil aliens looking to eat our heads, that sort of thing.
1: Well, as I said earlier, I was mentioning how these themes crop up in science fiction, our obsession with war, with violence. These themes are often filtering in through these films and books.
0: Yes, absolutely. The other film I wanted to just mention too, which is more about the AI theme currently, is the film called Her, which came out a few years ago. I saw it. Starring Joaquin Phoenix. And explores the idea of human beings in relationship with AI, with apps that simulate partners. And he essentially falls in love with this relationship app, if you like, or operating system. And it's fascinating because <laughs> they develop this relationship and you get this warmth and gushy feeling and At the end, he realizes, or she tells him, ultimately, that she has been having this kind of relationship with thousands of people simultaneously, men and women and everything in between. Because she's an operating system, she's able to be in virtual space everywhere and anywhere, which essentially kind of breaks his heart in the end. It's a very sad, poignant film in that way. But it's an example of where we're getting to with AI, and robotics and that sort of thing, and that we need to be thoughtful and careful about how we develop these technologies because it's going to have profound effects on society.
1: You mentioned in a conversation, you asked me what I thought or anyone that I knew thought of sci-fi. so. I posed this question to my partner, and Phyllis is into sci-fi more than I am in some ways. And I just asked, why do you like it, and what does it do for you? And the direct quote is, because science fiction is closer to reality than most people think, and it softens the blow of the coming reality. And what I'm about to say is paraphrase, but the essence of it is that there's an uncertainty of all things that are coming and sci-fi offers it to you in a fashion that you're not shocked. It's a sort of wonderment, an adult form of fantasy. It's a fiction, like all stories, but it's more mystical than science. And so it sort of removes you from reality, but it feels safe. I found that statement interesting. It feels safe.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's really an echo of how mythologies down through history have shaped societies and people's view of the Earth and the planet, their history, and everything else. It's a way of sort of softening the shocks of the future as they come at us, because we'll have had some indication of it before. So, for example, the Star Trek character called the Borg, which is this huge sort of biotechno being that absorbs human beings into its technology is really the harbinger and a kind of a warning about what's called transhumanism, Mm -hmm. which is this connection between human beings and technology being integrated in a fundamental way and what could result from that. And more recent, RoboCop is another example of transhumanism. Yes,
1: and to me, on a more practical, everyday level, I think one of the things that science fiction really does in many ways, it gives us a way to share our hopes for the future. And I I think that's something that's very, very important to humanity in general, because it doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to gain a new perspective every time we watch one of these movies or read one of these books. Can you think of any science fiction book or movie or show that you've watched that ends on a hopeless note.
0: Oh, yeah. Tons. Think of Planet of the Apes. My God. And he's looking at the Statue of Liberty buried in the sand. The apes have taken over Earth. There's numbers of them.
1: My follow-up question to that is, how did you feel seeing that versus the typical film ending, which always ends on a good note or a hopeful note?
0: Well, I feel that it's a better piece of art because it leaves you with the question of How did they get to that place? And is that where we want to be in the end? So in general, I don't like happy, nicely tied up, hopeful endings. I don't think it's as much fun to experience that kind of art. Every now and then it's fine, of course. But I like the, uh, what the hell have we done? Ending, like Soylent Green. We're all food. Human beings have become food. That's the beauty of those endings is it leaves you in a state of shock. And I go, what? That's what I love. These science fiction stories,
1: they're based on our fears and aspirations for the world to come or the future. Right. And we don't necessarily know what's up ahead or what comes next. So we tend to want to prepare for the worst and also be ready for good things that come. So science fiction seems to offer both warnings and hopes.
0: Yeah, and it's one of the few forms of art that offers a vision of the future. And as time has gone on, we've lost, in a way, our connection with the flow of time. With the amount of information that's coming into our brains every moment on social media, etc., we've kind of lost our connection with the flow of time. So when a science fiction tale takes us 800,000 years into the future or 300 years into the past, it helps us reconnect with our sense of time and our connection to the flow of history. And I think that's a really positive thing.
1: And speaking of time, I think we've run out of time.
0: (laughs) What is time anyway? Anybody out there who wants to pipe in and tell us what your favorite science fiction story is and why, we'll share that in the next podcast.
1: Yes, we always welcome your comments and replies and insights into anything that we discuss. And we hope you've enjoyed this one as well.
0: Ciao, Peter. Have a good day on your planet. Over and out. Ciao, Harry. Ciao, Peter.
1: The Sill Podcast is a Connecting Dots Media production. Available at thesillpodcast.com.
0: Thank you for your donation to The Sill Podcast.